the 37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Well, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Pixelated Paranormal, episode 216. What will effectively be our Thanksgiving episode. Now, we will be back next week during Thanksgiving to talk about something else entirely, but uh, we just figured we would title this one the Thanksgiving episode because if you can tell by the title, it's got to do with stuffing your face. Gobble, gobble, motherfuckers. <laughs> right. But before we get into that, Preston, how you been, buddy? Eh, you know, I've been all right. <laughs> As I told my massage therapist, you know I've been worse. <laughs> Some things could be a little better, but I've been a lot worse. Steve is not going to be with us on this episode because we recorded on a weird night because um, we had the stream this weekend for Pixelated for a Purpose, and it kind of threw off our recording schedule. And then, as everybody saw on Instagram and Facebook, there was a power outage at my house, so it pushed us back another day on top of us already being late recording. So he'll be joining us next week when we get back on our schedule of recording on Sundays. But for now, it's just old Presto and I. The Batman but, and Robin, uh, you know, Deadpool and Wolverine, <laughs> Ace, Ace and Gary, Rick and yeah. Marty. This the the gruesome twosome, buddy. Yeah. Now, before we get started on the news, I do want to say congratulations to Pixelated for a Purpose this year in a year where I honestly was going to be astounded if we could even break $1,000 because I really feel like it's a hard time in general to be asking people to donate. Um, we raised, as of today, right now, the 17th of November, $2,280. Whoop, whoop. And yeah, so I want to say a heartfelt thank you on behalf of all the guys. To all of you, listeners, followers, friends, family, everybody. Preston, you included because you and Jeffrey donated. I, we wouldn't have done it without you guys, obviously. Um, we are over the moon with how generous you guys were all being this year. It means a lot to us. It's going to mean a hell of a lot more to the children who this is going to help. And again, all that money goes towards our local chapters of Children's Miracle Network Hospitals. So we couldn't be happier, and it truly is uh, something amazing. We had a great time, lots of engagement, lots of people watching, um, lots and lots of interactiveness on the Twitch channel. So, I mean, hell, next year's going to be even bigger, I bet. Mm, yeah. How much did we uh, raise uh, last year, or we did we do it last year? We did it last year. Um, we didn't do it last year because of COVID. Like we were all just a little nervous, you know, to meet up and all sit in one room together. But give me a second and I'll look it up because I want to say it was not too far off of that amount. Instagram is being very very slow right now as I'm trying to sit here and scroll down to where we were. I want to say it was like 23, 2400. Hold on, almost there, guys. This makes for great content. Da, 
da, da, da, da, da, da, da. That would have been 2019, yes? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, uh, let's see here. November 6, 2019, final total raised $2,610. Um, that's fantastic. Number one. And number two, uh, for a year where I feel like, again, it's tough times for people, we still yeah. pulled out over $2,200 in donations from all you beautiful, wonderful people. So hell yeah, man. Um, that's almost $5,000 over the course of just two events. So... We're going to make it bigger and better next year. Mm -hmm. Well, we have one news story, Presto, and I didn't tell you what it is because it's kind of fun and kind of a surprise. Surprise Now, me. this is... N <laughs> we are not being paid or promoted by LifeShip.com, but Preston and dear listeners, what if I asked you to join a space mission to the moon? Why not launch your DNA on a rocket and be a part of humanity's future beyond the Earth? You've always dreamt of going to space, and finally you can as a part of a space mission by adding your DNA to a time capsule of life from the planet Earth being launched to the moon. You'll preserve your unique blueprint, feel forever connected to your loved ones, and leave your legacy on the universe by getting on board and joining LifeShip Community. Send your DNA to the moon. Realize your dreams of space travel. Man, they just sit here and fucking try to sell this thing to you without even telling you what the fuck it is. Mm -hmm. Here's why people are choosing LifeShip. So when people see the moon, I will be there, especially for my daughters, so my light can always guide them, even in the dark of night, says Dawn from Florida. Basically what this is, folks, is asking you to probably take a, take a cheek swab or spit in a tube, stick it or in a canister, and launch it into outer space. Don't forget jizz in a cup. <laughs> Ooh, maybe. Hmm. Talk about a moonshot to the moon. Yeah, that's how you get them moon babies, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Step one, order. Register for a moon mission for yourself. Give it as a gift. Send it, send your pet or go together as a family. Get your limited edition ticket, stickers, and mission patch. Don't wait to order. As a special offer, your DNA will travel to the International Space Station for free by now. Step two, return your DNA sample easily collected at home with a simple saliva swab or an old dirty sock if you catch my drift. It gets preserved in a synthetic amber and then goes into a time capsule along with the genetic codes of fellow travelers and Earth's diverse plant and animal species. Step three, fly on a SpaceX rocket accompanying actual NASA, NASA, God, if I could talk tonight, NASA missions and scientific expeditions. You'll receive inspiring updates as the mission progresses as well as a VIP invite to a community watch party of the launch. Step four, live stream the lunar landing. The Firefly Blue Ghost lander containing the capsule of your DNA will stay on the surface of the moon forever. Ladies and gentlemen, your rocket is boarding. Join an inspiring space mission to preserve humankind and our planet's biodiversity beyond the Earth by going on an actual epic voyage with limitless potential. 
you can be a pioneer in humanity's future in space. I'm going to hit the buy now button to see how much this shit's going to cost. I want to give a hearty thank you to John who posted this on Facebook because I quickly stole it and threw it in the tab called for the podcast. Um, I kind of think they might be lying to us because when you click buy now, it says $99. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, you guys spelled free wrong. Yeah. Uh, order your kit and you'll also fly to the International Space Station for free. The fuck am I going to do otherwise? Just shoot it off to some factory? Interesting. Well, or any shoot, guys. shoot it on a NASA, you know, employee's chest. Anyways. Huh. Um, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I, I feel like, um, you know, we, we don't learn from our mistakes as human Mm-mm. beings. And, um, you know... I, I don't want to, you know, name blame anybody, but <laughs> right. yeah, China uh, did this uh, like two years ago, but they didn't use he- human DNA. They used uh, little troglodytes and uh, they, they put them in like one of their little space canisters because like, you know, they can survive in like zero G and they don't need a lot yeah. of water. And they were, I don't know, going to do some science bullshit. And then... Mm-hmm. Um, well, their space rocket blew up, and oh, um, no. yeah, the, the troglodytes, you know, they can survive that shit, and so, mm-hmm. um, like, millions of troglodytes are now, like, inhabiting the moon and populating <laughs> the moon. Um, I, I just feel like this is a bad idea because um, you, you're introducing, like, you know, human DNA, and then you already got, like, troglodytes, which are, like... Whoa. base base strain dna bullshit like uh-huh you know that's uh the, the perfect conditions for like alien life to start growing and there's gonna be like weird you know worm moon babies on the moon <laughs> and i just i don't think it's a good idea so fucking stop oh, it. no <laughs> especially if you shoot your gonad gravy into the tube and that busts open on the surface of the moon then what happens yeah yeah, yeah. <sighs> Yeah, the jokes are too easy, and we're much better than that. <sighs> well, speaking of human DNA, <laughs> there's no segue. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, Thanksgiving is just around the corner, Preston, and it's got me thinking what the rest of us are all thinking, and that's eating our body weight in turkey, or in my case, um, gosh, what are we having? I don't know. Any hoozle. Every time I think about eating, especially a delicious, beautifully cooked meal, I think of one of my top three TV shows of all time, Hannibal, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from Brian Fuller. Now, I don't know if you've watched the show. I keep forgetting, even though I've asked you a hundred times. Have you watched Hannibal yet? Yes, all seasons. Hell yeah, baby. Well, I think about this the beautiful, beautiful lay, lays, lays. <laughs> spreads that he puts out and just how he made like the lung meat into flowers and all this cool shit for whatever reason thanksgiving makes me think of hannibal so i got to thinking about cannibalism and i realized we haven't really talked about cannibalism too much in depth in the show yet unless i'm forgetting like i forgot we talked about the dover demon i mean we have we've like hit on it like here and 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 there um Mm -hmm. You know, we haven't really, we, we haven't gone into like, f- you know, full detail. Um, you okay. know, we talked, we talked about, uh, you know, one of the 
Tibetan burial rituals where like grandma dies and you got to go around the table and everybody's got to like take a chunk of dead grandma and eat it. Oh yeah. Um, the the celebrity because you ask us would I eat James Franco salami? Um, yes. Yeah, and that's not a it, euphemism. Yeah, that's a real that's a real thing. Um, Lab grown human meat. Uh, we've talked about that. Uh, uh-huh. Pickled pickled toes in your drink. Um, we've talked about that. <laughs> yes. And yes, then, the toe shot. Yeah, there was also a gentleman that, um, in an unfortunate accident, lost his foot, and so then um, he asked the hospital if he could have his foot back. And then he took it home and put it through a meat grinder and then served him and his buddies uh, foot tacos for yes. dinner one night. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, we're not experts on cannibalism, but, uh, <laughs> you know, we've talked about it at a time. And the Wendigo, don't forget about oh, yeah, the Wendigo. Of course. Yeah. Of course. That part I knew. Uh, funnily enough, I'm currently looking at my Wendigo pop vinyl from <laughs> the Hannibal TV show. Ooh. Well, cannibalism, honestly, is quite a weird taboo concept. Outside of humans, though, cannibalism is not that unheard of, especially when it comes to insects, snails, fish, or other amphibians. So, for example, the crab spider, the mothers, lay unfertilized eggs on top of the nurse eggs for her spiderlings to feast on. And once the eggs are then consumed, she herself then offers her body up to her little hatchlings to be cannibalized entirely in a process called matrophagy. Hmm. But when it comes to mammals, cannibalism is more rare and typically triggered by environmental stressors such as when mommy and daddy rabbits eat the baby rabbits when they're incredibly stressed out. But we, Preston, do know, as we've talked about just a second ago, there are several cases of cannibalism being practiced in humans, such as when French paleontologists recently found human examples of cannibalism dating back over 100,000 years ago to the Neanderthal bones they discovered that showed signs of breaking as a way to extract marrow and also skulls being smashed in which the brains were obviously consumed. I don't know how they were obviously shown to be consumed unless they were, you know, spoon and fork markings inside the skull caps. But again, we're not scientists. Meanwhile, in the 20th century in Europe, medicinal cannibalism had taken place where human blood was prescribed as a remedy for several ailments. However, without proper care and preparation, people can risk contracting several diseases any bloodborne diseases, especially hepatitis or even Ebola, by consuming another human who is infected by such diseases. Now, another form of cannibalism that is not really frowned upon or even thought of cannibalism itself is the act of a mother giving birth and then consuming the placenta, which commonly is prepared similar to that of liver, if you cook, you know, liver and onions or something like that. Now, we know of perhaps one of the most famous acts of cannibalism, the Donner Party. The Donner Party itself was a group of American pioneers who migrated to California in a wagon train from the Midwest. Now, delayed by a multitude of just shitty luck, they spent the winter of 1846 through 1847 snowbound in the Sierra Nevada mountain range, 
where some of the migrants may have resorted to cannibalism in order to survive. That's right, folks, we all know the story. They ate the bodies of those who had succumbed to starvation, sickness, or frostbite. But what about the lesser-known Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, a.k.a. the Old Christian's Rugby Cannibals? I need hold music while the articles load up. <laughs> so, the Uruguayan Air Force Flight of 571, popularly known as the Miracle of the Andes, or what I like to call the old Christian rugby cannibals, was a story about an aircraft chartered by an entire Uruguayan amateur rugby team that unfortunately crashed in the Andes Mountains of Argentina on October 13, 1972, and the wreckage was not discovered for, oh, uh, two months later. Of the 45 people aboard the plane, only 16 people survived the ordeal, and the incident garnered international attention, especially after it was revealed the 16 survivors had resorted to cannibalism in order to survive. So this plane had carried the entire old Christians rugby team and their friends and family, and it suddenly crashed down in the foothills of Argentina near the Chilean border, on the 13th of October, 1972, where the team was scheduled to fly from Montevideo, Uruguay, to Santiago, Chile, on the plane. Now, the pilot had radioed in that he reached Curacao, Chile, or Curaco, Chile, around 110 miles south of Santiago, and had headed north about an hour after takeoff from Mendoza. But unfortunately, they hit some severe weather. Now, the pilot underestimated the plane's location, admittedly, and unfortunately, they were only in the Andes. So, when the plane crashed down due to the unfortunate circumstances, 12 people died instantly, and five more passed away within hours after the crash, and one more died one week later. So, we've already surmounted about 18 people who may or may not have been ripe for the eaten. On the 17th day of their experience, Tragedy struck again when an avalanche had randomly occurred, killing eight more of the travelers, and in the severe cold conditions, survivors had little food or sources of heat. So unfortunately, starvation incurred, and the survivors resorted to eating the corpses after a protracted discussion of, should we or shouldn't we? But unfortunately, you know, they had to survive, so that was their only option. At the time of the accident, Cessna, who was a 19-year-old medical student and rugby player and one of the sole survivors of the crash, said, I'll never forget the first incision nine days after the accident. And from then, the survivors fell into cannibalism, and that was the most difficult part to bear. Some of them said the cannibalism itself was more excruciating than the extreme weather conditions. The days were difficult for each member, minute by minute, and it seemed like a struggle they would never survive. All in all, they were rescued 72 days later after survivors Dr. Roberto Cessna, Nando Parada, and Antonio Visnit had traveled for 10 days to seek aid, while those who stayed at the crash were forced to consume the bodies of the dead comrades to survive. Well, what the hell did those three dudes survive on, I wonder? Uh, maybe they, you know, some, maybe some ass cheeks, some you know legs. 
I meant, yeah, you know, you answered it for me, maybe. I meant, do they eat like animals they caught, or do they pack doggy bags? But you just went straight for it. And that's what I appreciate about you. <laughs> well, presto, the problem is eating human meat becomes pretty risky due to the presence of prions. Now, prions is a $5 word spelled with six letters, and basically it's a version of normal protein that has had the shape altered, thus losing their normal function and becoming infectious. So think of it as like dirty, rotting proteins. These distorted proteins can cause an influence for other similar healthy proteins to change, causing a chain reaction, thus creating a very nasty disease. Specifically, prion disease creates a hole in your brain, giving a spongiform appearance and ultimately causing death. Kind of similar to a weird disease called Hith, hole in the head, found in Oscar fishes. Now, unlike viruses, bacteria, fungi, or parasitic infections which contain DNA or RNA, prions don't contain any of that, which means they can't be eradicated with radiation or heat, and they could be present in any nervous tissue, including organs and muscles. However, they are most common in the brain and spinal nerve tissue, so folks, stick to the meaty bits of the booty. But here's the problem. If you're like Sir Mix-a-Lot and you like big butts, during extended periods of human cannibalism, you could also develop a wicked case of constipation because of the consumption of all that protein. So what do you do? You try to eat handfuls of grass and maybe some maple leaves. That way you can get a little fiber buildup and you can pass those Lincoln logs like you should. But presto, sometimes you don't always get the option to choose the cannibal life. Maybe perhaps the cannibal life chooses you because the decision was made for you. Here's a couple scenarios where folks were unsuspectedly fed other human beings. <gasps> Ooh, gasp. Ooh. Let's start with the infamous name. Okay, guys, look, you don't come here for the pronunciations, so let's just go ahead and say we're going to pronounce all this shit probably wrong. Let's start with the infamous Paul Carl Denke. Well, that one's fucking easy. A devout, peaceful, <laughs> generally respected. <laughs> he was a devout, peaceful, generally respected citizen of a town which I'm sure to butcher Zibis, which he turned out to be a cannibal who killed 40 people before he was ultimately arrested and then unfortunately committed suicide in 1924. But here's what's interesting this guy knew a thing or two about a thing or two about meat preservation. He chose to pickle the flesh of his unsuspecting victims and then sold it at the Rocklaw Market as quote-unquote pickled pork. The same tactic was allegedly taken by Fritz Harman, a German guy who killed at least 24 people in Hanover, who were generally male prostitutes whose throats he bit out while sodomizing. Rumors suggest that he too sold his victims as pork on the black market before his eventual capture and execution by beheading in 1925. And finally, another German serial killer by the name of Karl Grossman, who was arrested in 1921 after enthusiastically murdering his way through the Great War. Grossman's kind of an interesting guy, but we're not going to dedicate the episode to him because fuck that guy. 
but Grossman sold the meat from an estimated 50 different women he killed on the black market and even ran a hot dog stand where he offloaded the flesh in the form of hot dogs and warm sandwiches, and then he would throw the inedible remains into a nearby river not to get caught. Now if we jump in the Wayback Machine and go way forward. Another German guy by the name of Armin Muse was a former computer repair technician who achieved international attention for killing and eating a voluntary victim in 2001. So what he did is he found a willing victim after posting an advertisement in the then-active website The Cannibal Cafe, a now-defunct forum for people who had cannibalism fetishes. Muse advertised that he wanted to find a normally built 18 to 25-year-old to be slaughtered and then consumed. Bernard Jürgen Armando Brandis, a 43-year-old engineer from Berlin, answered the advertisement in March of 2001. After several other people responded to the advertisement, but then backed out once they realized they were really going to be fucking eaten. (laughs) (laughs) But to his credit, Muse didn't attempt to force anybody to do anything against their will and made it very obvious he wanted to actually fucking eat somebody. So together, Muse and the victim made a videotape where they met on the 9th of March, 2001 in Muse's home. I'm going to make this as brief as I can and just kind of give you the high notes. Muse amputated Brandis's penis with his agreement, and the two men attempted to eat it, but it proved to be too hard to cook. So Muse got frustrated, and he murdered no, it's the It's not like your uh, typical, like, wiener schnitzel dish. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything less from you. Wow. <laughs> Muse ultimately got really, really, really frustrated with the victim and ultimately murdered him out of frustration. After killing him, he stored body parts in the freezer underneath pizza boxes and consumed a total of 44 pounds of the flesh of the victim. Muse was arrested in December of 2002 when a college student alerted authorities to a new advertisement he posted for additional victims. Investigators searched through his home and found body parts and videotapes of the murder. When speaking to a German newspaper, Muse admitted cannibalizing Brandis and expressed regret for his actions. Then he added he wants to write a biography with the aim of deterring anybody else from following in his footsteps. Websites dedicated to Muse started appearing after his 2002 arrest with people advertising for willing victims. They, quote, should go for treatment so it doesn't escalate to what happened with me, said Muse. While in prison, Muse has since become a vegetarian, and he said he believes through the forums and chatting with other people, there may be as many as 800 active cannibals in Germany. Hot damn, that is insane. But now, presto, in contrast of the first few stories that I just shared with you. Sometimes, Preston, you decide to delve into the cannibalism in the name of science. A gentleman by the name of William Bueller Seabrook was an American occultist, explorer, traveler, and journalist born in Westminster, Maryland. 
He began a career as a reporter and the city editor of the Augusta Chronicle in Georgia. He worked at the New York Times and later became a well-known author for writing a book that dabbled in cannibalism. Back in the 1920s, Seabrook traveled to West Africa and came across a tribe who took part in the ceremonious eating of human meat. Seabrook wrote about the experience of cannibalism in his novel Jungle Ways. However, later on, Seabrook admits the tribe didn't actually let him join in on the cannibalism because he was an outsider, ergo he couldn't partake in any of the rituals. But Seabrook became fascinated by the concept of cannibalism, and so he found a way to persuade a medical intern at the Sorbonne, the University of Paris, to give him a chunk of meat from a fresh body of a healthy man who had just been killed in an accident, which he then later cooked, ate, and described as follows. It was like good, fully cooked veal. Not young, but not yet beef. It was very definitely like that. And it was not like any other meat I had ever tasted. It was so nearly like good, fully developed veal that I think no person with a palate of ordinary or normal sensitiveness could distinguish it from actual veal. It was mild, good meat with no other sharply defined or highly characteristic tastes, such as, for instance, what you taste in a goat, high game, or even pork. So, like Sean's been, uh, you know, talking about for the last, uh, let's sticker here, uh, Jesus <laughs> Christ, 35 minutes, cannibalism yep. is not uncommon. Humans have long, um, in shrine the conception of human flesh and sacred ritual not just a few times but again and again in almost every corner of the globe evidence of cannibalistic practices have been found in south america the pacific islands native americans and even uh, other religions of the world lab-grown meats we don't judge here at pixelated paranormal but Germany, <laughs> holy fuck, guys, what the fuck is going on? Jesus, you, you had like four fucking stories in this episode of you guys chopping off dicks, pickling, you know, people dicks. and uh, <laughs> dicks and other stuff. Like, Jesus, Germany, get it together. And, uh, you know, cannibalism is not. A, a distant historical fact like we like to think maybe we've moved on as you know society and we've gotten better but we haven't for example 1980 medicians sans frontes the international medical charity documented ritualized cannibal feast among soldiers in uh, liberia since then the ritual has become more common and by the early 2000s Sacred cannibalism was a common practice in the, this near-archaic country where violence, rape, and dr drug abuse are widespread. Cannibalism has also been documented in the Congo, in Sierra Leone, and in Uganda, where it was infamously uh, practiced among the children's soldiers of Joseph Kony's army. In such war-torn areas, participants in ritual cannibalism are often happy to make their uh, motivations clear. 
they draw spiritual and physical power from the consumption of human flesh, just like the Wendigo. <laughs> In Child Armies, cannibalism is a initiation ritual and an ordeal that transforms a boy into a man. And I'm no scientist, but I'm willing to bet that that's the start of turning a man into the Wendigo. Anyways, <laughs> all this makes him feel sanctified, empowered, and safe under the, the hails of bullets. So, you know, basically, uh, if you want to become Superman, eat a dude. Ooh. Yeah. But cannibalism has no single uh, ubiquitous meaning. Rather, it is adopted to suit the spiritual framework from each culture in which it is practiced. For ancient Egyptian pharaohs, it guaranteed eternal afterlife. For druids, it might have been connected with agriculture and fertility. For others, cannibalism has served as a tool of empowerment, intimidation, and a way to honor the beloved dead. But most of all, cannibalism deals in taboo. So yes, it's still a no-go on eating James Franco lab-grown salami. <laughs> we often think of taboo in terms of prescribed action it's taboo to marry your brother sean unless you're from it the is. peacock f family in the x-files episode we talked about last week but i'm digressing <laughs> yeah in fact anthropologists often find taboo as an act deemed too sacred to perform under ordinary circumstances so you just can't go on the internet and say i want to eat a dick will somebody come let me chop their dick off you can't do that uh Taboo is an act that involves the greatest peril while invoking the most tremendous power. Cannibalism is one of the strongest taboos of all, and that might be the very reason why it's been considered one of the most holy rituals around the world from back into the depths of prehistory. Um, like you mentioned earlier, in the cave dwellings of Homo ancestoror, the common ancestor of modern humans and Neanderthals, anthropologists discovered defleshed human bones dating back 600,000 years. The earliest Homo sapiens found in Ethiopia also show signs of defleshing by other humans. In 1881, the French archaeologist Gaston Maspero broke into a tomb in the vast Egyptian burial ground of Saqqara outside of Cairo. At the end of a long underground causeway, he found the gallery of brightly painted reliefs, including harvest scenes, temple ceremonies, battles with enemies, and then uh, there were uh, ritual inscriptions. And uh, these turned out to belong to a set of spells known as the Pyramid Texts, a large and ver uh, varied, uh, you know, just menagerie of Egyptian magical literature that appears fully formed in some of the earliest tombs, hinting that these spells and rituals uh, date back uh, to a time before writing. And uh, the strangest of these pyramid texts are, uh, uh, you know, ones that deal with cannibalism. And there was a little poem that went, uh, the Pharaoh is he who lives of on the being of every God who eats their entrails. Fucking disgusting. Hmm. Pharaoh is he who eats man and lives on gods. This cannibalistic hymn was enshrined uh, was a, the enshrined tradition of ancient, highly ritualized culture, whose roots reach back far into the mists of prehistory. 
When warlords of the Nile Delta feast on the flesh of their conquered enemies and they called it holy. Now, some monks and aesthetics practice cannibalism with the aim of transcending precisely this boundary. Take, for example, the Agoras, a sect of Hindu ascetics in India. A core principles of the Agorai doctrine is that all things in the universe are equally sacred, including human remains. By holding and caressing dead bodies, a practice regarded as highly taboo in mainstream Hinduism and uh, eating human flesh, the Agoras aim to transcend all dichotomies, seen through the illusionary nature of uh, human of humans and attain nirvana by becoming one of the ultimate realities so uh you know basically uh when you pass on sean um your sacrifice uh, to the universe is going to be my gain because i'm going to eat you oh yeah perhaps the clearest insight of all comes from tibetan monks who as re- recently as the 1500s ritually consumed pills of flesh collected from Brahmin aesthetics and left extensive written documentation of the theory behind this practice. This theory turns out to be extraordinary, multi-layered, and complex, but it boils down to the idea that the flesh pills bridge the boundary between subject and object, serving as a ritual tokens that embody the compassion of past Buddhas, while also reminding the eater of the transcendent nature of his own mortal flesh. I didn't have 50s science music long enough to stay behind that. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, at the end of that, uh, fuck you, Germany. Ooh, I didn't <laughs> say it. Preston did. Direct all your hate mail to him. <laughs> well, you mentioned lab-grown meat twice in this episode, so let's have a quick chat about that. There is a really, really cool documentary series called The Next Thing You Eat. I think it's on Hulu, and it's got a really cool um, – he's almost become kind of a TV personality, but his name is David Chang, and he's a you know world-class chef. And on this show, he goes around and he kind of jumps into like, um, I don't know, somewhat serious topics like the fact that uh, sushi has become such a popular staple across the world that we're almost farming tuna fish into extinction – and other things like that. So one of the alternatives they've talked about is lab-grown meat. Now, I myself have looked into a little bit of alternative proteins as well, one of them being insect protein. Um, You can actually, you know, we've talked about this before a bit, Presto. You can do lab-grown cockroaches. You can do lab-grown mealworms, crickets, all sorts of stuff. And that's a really great alternative source to protein because the farms alone would be a minuscule impact on greenhouse effects compared to that of cows, you know, because they always be farting. (laughs) Well, one of the other things he talks about is lab-grown meat. And this guy, of course, like I said, he's a world-class chef. So on this episode that I just watched, he actually eats lab-grown salmon. And it's the damnedest thing. And essentially, here's kind of a recap on what happens. Because we know that most meat is made of particularly muscle, all meat and all muscle begins with a simple cell. For cells to grow, they require nurture and nourishment in order to naturally grow as they're supposed to grow into cows or chickens or pigs. 
Well, scientists and developers have found a way to feed the exact amount of nourishment to exact cells with a combination of salt, sugar, and amino acids. So the cells can then multiply into what they're supposed to be, i.e., you could take a single cell of a salmon, you know, a salmon patty, a salmon steak or whatever, and continue to engineer this thing by feeding it the amino acids and the salt and the sugar. And over time, it begins to multiply. And then you essentially can grow yourself a salmon steak. And I mean, I know TV is sometimes fake, but if what they show is to be true, they had a literal example of a salmon steak. They had an example of a chicken breast. It looked just like they pulled it out of a package. David Chang and his buddy cook it up and eat it, and they say it literally tastes identical to meat you would take out of a processing plant. So Preston, what do you think as far as like the morals and the legitimacy and the practicality of that? Would would you eat a lab-grown, you know, steak? Do you think it's a normal, natural thing? Seeing as though it began with a legitimate, real cell from a real cow. Uh, yeah, I mean, why not? You know, <laughs> it's strange to think because we think of a cow out in a field and then bada boom, bada bing, it gets processed into a delicious piece of, you know, filet mignon or ribeye or whatever. The idea but of it, growing that on a shelf somewhere is pretty alien. But people will like go to Burger King and eat the impossible burger and God knows what the hell that's made out of. Like it's all fake. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm well, I eating... think that's supposed to be made out of like plant fiber. <laughs> yeah, so I'm eating something that's less fake. Like, it's not a r real cow, but it's still kind of more of a cow than the Impossible Burger. So, I mean, I give it sure, a shot. Sure, sure. Interesting, yeah. I would give it a try because I'd be interested to see exactly what it tastes like. And, again, the practicality of it, I don't know what it costs to buy, you know, a lab-grown chicken breast versus a real one. But that's kind of besides the point, Preston, because what if I told you there might just be a way to combine that idea with cannibalism and make something a little less taboo that will still scratch that craving for human meat. Something a little more like tofu. What? <laughs> Thank you. So the finale of tonight's episode is one of those that just kind of fell into my lap. We built the whole intro to the episode around this little tidbit. In my Facebook feed Saturday night around 12.30 in the morning, I came across somebody who posted a screenshot for some clickbait article about what if I told you laboratories were growing human meat? And I thought, what the fuck is that? So I screenshotted it and Googled it. What it was fake newsing, or should I rephrase that, what it was referencing was Hufu. H-U-F-U. You've heard of tofu. This is a lot like that, but also a little different. Hufu was a product marketed as tofu designed to resemble human flesh in both taste and texture. The Hufu website existed from May 2005 to June 2006. Hufu was advertised, or more like boasted, as a healthy alternative to human flesh for cannibals who want to quit as well as a product for anthropology students to study cannibalism. According to the website, Hufu is also a great convenience 
as an alternate food for cannibals. No more Friday night hunting raids. Stay home and enjoy a great tasting, healthy meal of hufu. Mark Knuckles then a student of Tuck School of Business, claimed the concept of hufu occurred to him when he ate a tofurkey sandwich while reading a book called Good to Eat Riddles of Food and Culture, a book on cannibalism by Marvin Harris. Knuckles is also an honors graduate of Georgetown University Law Center. But essentially, they made this product boasting it was more like a tofu version of human meat, and it ended up being a legitimate thing. Now, in the end, it ended up being more of a soft, slightly sweet beef product. But that's not to say it didn't take off. Now, Hufu's homepage, eathufu.com, closed as of mid-2006. They closed the website because they said the world has moved on past Hufu, and the site has become simply more expensive to run than it is worth so unfortunately, our human meat substitute was short-lived. But apparently at one time, you could buy a fake human flesh substitute. Mm. But Preston, what if I told you, and the dear listeners, I had a way to bring this episode all the way around town. Because that's one of our favorite things to do is bring it all the way back around. The biggest question is not, should you send your DNA to outer space, presto? Should you shoot your load into a sock and hurl it at the moon? But instead, what if you gave your DNA sample to SpaceX and they hurled it into outer space, only to find out that a hundred years later, the troglodyte alien offspring opened up a human hamburger stand and Preston patties or what's for dinner. Because after all, you can grow lab-made meat with just one simple protein cell from the animal. And furthermore, Preston, that's all we are. It's just an animal with opposable thumbs and a brain. Wow. Yeah. Cannibalism, huh? Remind me not to fly with you, because... Uh... I feel like if the plane crashed, uh, you'd be having <laughs> some uh, rump roast a la Preston. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's the topic that I think is fascinating. Like you mentioned, you know, we think it's taboo, but in other cultures, it's actually just common practice, so. Yeah, like, uh, you know, when grandma dies, like, everybody's got to basically, instead of, like, burying the, your, your loved one, like, you put them in the middle of a feast table and everybody's like cutting a piece of grandma off and mm-hmm. like it, that's how you get rid of the body. And that's, you know, to <laughs> us, that's batshit crazy. Yeah. It's batshit crazy. But then to them, that's like honoring the dead. So yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. Well, in parting thoughts, I would like to suggest a few really classic cannibal films for you to watch. Now, first of all, you really, really, really need to watch Hannibal. Not the movies, those are fine. But give yourself the benefit of the doubt and check out that entire series. It's three seasons. Mad Mickelson will go down in history as being my favorite Hannibal Lecter. And it's just a beautiful artsy show. If TV shows aren't your thing, check out... Of course, Cannibal Holocaust, a fantastic film that actually landed the director 
in court because they thought after watching the film, he actually murdered people. There's a really interesting gag where it shows a woman sitting on a pike that's gone up through her backside out the roof of her mouth. He had to actually prove that he didn't really kill that woman, but instead it was a gag where she sat on top of a stool that was on the pole and then had a prosthetic pike coming out of her mouth. But he actually went to court over murder. Mm. Next, after that, another fantastic cannibal film is Cannibal Ferox, or Ferox, F-E-R-O-X. Another fantastic film, hot off the tail of Cannibal Holocaust. And if you want something a little more modern, I guess, with a yawn, I'd say you could watch Green Inferno, although I don't think it was that great. But yeah, those are three classic cannibal films for your enjoyment. Perfect timing for the holiday weekend. Bon appetit. What about, what about Soylent Green, motherfucker? Oh, you know what I've never seen before? Soylent Green? <laughs> Soylent Green is people. Oh, yeah. I've never watched it, but I need to for sure. Yeah, for sure. Char- I, I don't Charleston, know if... he- Charleston Heston's the man, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, dude. Yeah, I need to check that out sometime. I've never seen it, and I wonder if it holds its weight still, you know, in current times. But I don't know. Yeah, does plan Does Planet of the Fucking Apes still hold its weight? Like, dude, that's still a classic movie, of course. That's true. Omega Man's another pretty good one. I don't know if it was Charleston Heston. I think it is, though. I mean, like, when it's, like, Easter time and you got to watch, like, an Easter-themed movie, do you go watch the Ridley Scott version of Moses or do you watch the Charleston Heston version of Moses? It's the Charleston Heston one, okay? His name is Charlton Heston, not Charleston Heston. Well, you know what? I love you. Daddy's into uh, three of the Schreiner Bach holiday cheer brewed with peaches and pecans. (laughs) So uh, it's whatever I say his name is. (laughs) Yeah. I ain't pronounced shit right yet, and I ain't about to start nows. Yes, that's right, motherfuckers. (laughs) No, Preston, when I look for an Easter film, I fast forward straight to Critters Part 2. With the infamous bunny rabbit scene. Well, buddy, what says you we get the hell out of here, huh? Let's get the fuck out of here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks, if you're on the social medias, please follow us on Instagram, PXL Paranormal. If you're on the Facebooks, check us out, the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. We got a Twitter. We never use it. Maybe one day I'll remedy that. I don't even know if people still use Twitter. I'm not entirely sure. Oh, I'm sure you're somebody on does. The old, yeah, probably so. If you're on the old iTunes, please give us a rating and a review. We sure would love to hear from you. Also, it's about time we start wrangling up some stories for a listener story episode. I know we got tons of new listeners. If you've had something spooky or creepy happen to you, unexplainable and the like, please send us an email to pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, and we will share your story on our next listener story episode. Uh, I'm shooting for hopefully having, if I can even talk, hopefully shooting to have one in December. That would be awesome. And also, if you have a phone, give us a call. We've got a Google Voice number. 913-662-3144. Leave us a message. I think it can be up to three minutes long. If you get cut off, just call back and jump in right where you left off. 
Preston, what do you got for me, baby? Look, and as always, if you need a beard, if you want a beard, if you want to grow a beard that's genuine and human and not lab-grown and fake like the fucking Impossible Burger, then take yourself <laughs> over to BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order. And, uh, you know, I don't know that he still has it, but I got mine in the mail yesterday, and I have a bottle of barrel-aged uh, which is uh, Dobbs's uh, new flavor of the month. Uh, you know, he's limited run that he's aged in whiskey barrel with a hint of vanilla. And mm. um, I, I mean, I don't know how to describe it. Like, uh, you know, a lot of the beard products out there that are, uh, you know, like whiskey barrel aged and all like that other bullshit. They don't, they don't smell like whiskey. They smell like rubbing alcohol, but this goddamn it smells like it's straight from the bottle. Like I've been day drinking all day. Uh, <laughs> whoa. But in a good I, way. In a good way. I smell like, uh, you know, Charleston Heston. Uh, <laughs> you know, when, when you see him on that beach in Planet of the Apes and he's got like the oil glistening off his chest and, uh, you know. That's that's what I smell like, you know, how he looks. It's amazing. Just go over to Dobbs, use the code, hook yourself <laughs> up. You'll thank us. Trust me. Go to Dobbs. Uh, do I change the title of the episode, Hard On for Heston? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you do. Uh, good stuff. All right. If you're in the Wichita area, please run over to the CD Trade Post at Pawnee and Seneca. Stop and say hi to our dear friend, Leslie and the rest of the gang over there. Otherwise, on behalf of Big Steven, I'd love to say cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the Paranormal Highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the Paranormal Highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.